Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening in on today's podcast. Today, I am joined by Shala Ghaffari, who is a new managing attorney at Project Afghan Legal Assistance at the organization Human Rights First. Today, we are discussing asylee and refugee advocacy. This is the Immigration Advocates Network. We harness the power of technology and collaboration to support immigrants and their allies. My name is Treshawn Dennis-Brown, and I work within the organization as an AmeriCorps FISTA to improve access to justice. How are you doing today, Shala? It's great to see you. Hi, good morning, Treshawn. How are you? I'm well. You know, it's a little early in the morning, but I'm glad to be here nonetheless. Likewise. So we haven't, you know, been talking super aggressively during the years, but, you know, I have sort of kind of shadowed your career via LinkedIn and Facebook. So I kind of have, you know, some of the beats of what you've been doing over the past, you know, greater part of a decade, you know, for context, I did meet you in fall 2015, where you were a program manager at Catholic Charities. That sounds about right, correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. I was super surprised to see you. Uh, once again, a uh, leader in my career uh, in this context and, and always great to see a familiar face. <laughs> yeah, um, I had just taken some time off of school and, you know, I was looking for a job and I happened to find the New York City Young Adult Internship Program. And it was, you know, I did fit the qualifications. I was young and out of work and out of school. And um, you took me in and uh, here I am many years later. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the uh, Young Adult Internship Program, or YIP, is uh, one of, I think, the best programs that New York City uh, DYCD had uh, at that time, the Department of Youth and Community Development. Uh, our, we were tasked with really trying to re-engage uh, youth who were out of school, out of work, as you said, you know, for one reason or the other, had fallen sort of out of the traditional um, employment education model, and, you know, find ways to, to re-engage those folks. So, um, your cohort, uh, we, you know, cohort 14, was one of, I think, my favorite. Uh, we had a really great group of young folks who were just super, you know, super open, super warm, um, curious, uh, ready to, ready to, you know, take their opportunities or their internships and really see the possibilities of, um, of relaying that into a career. And I'm so glad to see you many years later uh, doing exactly that. Yeah, you know, I think that's very interesting because, you know, the way, if I remember correctly, the way the program works is, you know, um, you would build us with the skills necessary to survive in the workplace, and you would also, you know, place us in an internship for, you know, three months or so. And at the time, you placed me with uh, at the New York Legal Assistance Group, and little did I know that working that that being my first internship would eventually pave the way for my career in legal advocacy. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, we really tried to tweak uh, the programming with every cohort and sharpen it. It really starts uh, in terms of uh, you know so sort of these psychological assessments, career assessments, figuring out where the young person's passion lies, where their skills lie, um, you know how it is that their the rest of their life would make sense with that with that career direction. We had a lot of folks who were parents, folks that had sort of um, other other um, considerations in their life that we had to take uh, take into account in terms of geography and things of that nature. And so for you, you know, early on, I think you and I connected on a, on a personal level because I could really see a little bit of myself in you, and I could see the you know uh, 
the desire to sort of uh, work for something and for someone beyond yourself. And so when it came down to uh, matching uh, our interns with internships, uh, I thought, you know, Nylag would be so lucky to have someone like you. And I think, you know, uh, conversely, uh, you would gain a lot from being at an organization as as sort of reputable, as uh, as well known, and also as you know, doing doing the kind of great work that Nylag does. So I'm so happy that it turned out to be a great match. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting too because you know I eventually went on to have my flirtation with Big Law, but it just didn't necessarily do it for me the same way that um, legal legal advocacy did as well. So thank you for that. Is all I'm trying to say. My pleasure. Um, so that program was based at a Catholic Charities um, location. Um, so do you think that, do, I don't know the answer to this question, but given that you like sort of started at Catholic Charities, did you think, did that factor into your decision to, you know, come back to it later in your uh, career? And I know we're getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I thought it was a good time to put that in there. Yeah, you know, I so I, I had actually gone to law school before I, uh, worked at DY, I worked with the DYCD program, so I just stepped away from law for a little moment. Um, mm -hmm. It was also a moment in my life where I was looking for, um, as you said, sort of a, a, a direction and as uh, for a purpose that wasn't sort of traditional law. And so working with uh, Catholic Charities in, in, in Queens um, and working with youth in particular really gave me the kind of perspective I think, uh, I, think I needed at that time. Um, you know, I, I was able to develop sort of a lot of skills with respect to, you know, um, uh, thinking about sort of vulnerable populations, um, at-risk populations, the kinds of barriers that folks face uh, that uh, prohibit or, or limit sort of their full integration into a society, right? Uh, and, and with respect to the DYCD program, it was uh, for the most part economic barriers, but there could have also been, like I said, sort of other family barriers, sometimes you had developmental barriers, things of that nature. And then when I parlayed that into a, into a career working with immigrants and, 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 and refugees, a whole different set of barriers came into play, right? A lot of times those barriers overlap because of course you had, oftentimes you have immigrants and, and refugees that are also um, economically disadvantaged or perhaps socially or, you know, sort of developmentally disadvantaged. That, that overlap definitely happens. But for the most part, we're really talking about a different population, but oftentimes uh, this same sort of impact, which is this inability to fully integrate into a society. So that's actually very fitting because that actually leads into, you know, the next sort of transition question, which is, you know, so I believe I left that program, you know, that, co that cohort ended, that cohort ended in, I think, February 2016. And I had, you know, followed you on Facebook. And I believe, you know, a little bit later when I had, you know, gotten back into school, you left to basically work on the front, the front lines of like the then Greek migrant crisis. Can you talk about why you went and how that experience affected you? Absolutely. So you, I, I must have been seeing you on a daily basis when sort of the wheels were turning in my mind about how exactly it was that I could get involved in in that crisis. So uh, as we all know, uh, uh, the borders of Europe in 2015 sort of opened up for lack of a better term. And there was free movement from Turkey all the way to Western Europe, uh, whether that was de facto and some of that was actually invited, like uh, very famously the, uh, the Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel invited um, Syrian refugees into, into Germany at that time. So as I was watching 
uh, that, that footage along with everyone else from my living room, I started noticing, you know, faces that didn't look, that didn't look Syrian, right? And so hearing, uh, hearing about it more and more, I, I started hearing that, you know, the number two or three population um, in terms of migrants at that time were actually Afghans and my family's from Afghanistan. And so, um, you know, working with refugees was something that was definitely in my mind um, for a very long time. And, I, and for that, I really saw an opportunity for myself where I could really make a contribution in a way that I think uh, would have been different from a lot of uh, other folks, um, in particular, having the firsthand experience of myself being an asylum seeker. I was a four month old baby asylum seeker to the US. And so I could personally relate to that, to that story and that, and that journey. And then secondly, you know, having the kind of linguistic and, and cultural um, uh, knowledge and, and skills that I think uh, one would really need, especially, uh, you know, traveling through many different countries, many different languages, many different governmental systems, and just to kind of see a familiar face, I thought, um, you know, I, I could really see my, my, my opportunity in that. And so in March of 2016, right after I said goodbye to you and your cohort, I, uh, you know, uh, took all my vacation time at Catholic Charities and booked a trip for about three weeks to Greece and kind of just made it up as I went along. I was connected with one organization um, where I was meant to stay with uh, at the Greek island of Lesbos. But um, the day I arrived, uh, the EU-Turkey deal was actually signed since March 21st of 2016. Um, and that deal basically um, was supposed to close the border, the water border between Turkey and Greece. We may remember the really infamous images of folks um, crossing from Greece, uh, from uh, from Turkey into Greece on those on those life rafts or those little those little boats, uh, and so this deal was meant to shut shut down all of that travel, and so really uh, that was supposed to be it, right? So I landed in Greece on Lesbos, kind of a little discouraged, I have to say, where I thought, okay, well, problem solved. What is it that I need to do at this point, right? So little did I know, of course, where where one uh, where one problem ends, I think another one begins or, you know, come, you know, to, to put a positive flip on that, you know, where one opportunity ends, another one opens. Right, so right. I, I really understood that at that point, uh, my job was not just to assist folks in sort of their travel and their journey across Europe, but, but really to understand what their rights were um, in Greece, um, uh, those folks that were, you know, trapped on the Greek side because simultaneously there was also an agreement for all countries to shut down their borders, not just between Greece and Turkey, but um, all throughout that, that, entire, that entire journey, um, that, uh, that entire journey west. So um, my role then switched to um, informing folks of what the, uh, the Greek asylum system was like, what their rights were um, in that country, you know, what possibilities they had to move uh, further west to their many of their destination countries and you know questions around family reunification things of that nature um, so yeah I, I really just saw my my legal training kick into high gear at that very moment so you were talking about you know needs that you know you were talking about um family reunification what rights people have in what rights um asylees have in greece and so forth you know what kind of this is a little bit of an open-ended question but what kind of needs were you seeing or people telling you that they had um, when you were over there, you know, what were their biggest concerns, you know, as they sort of uh, made a pathfinder trail through a new country even? 
Yeah. So, you know, I have to be honest, a lot of folks just didn't believe it, you know, so they had, you know, heard of so many people before them make the journey west. And uh, at that point, they had family connections, you know, destination cities and countries. And so, uh, but for those folks that were actually at the border uh, between Greece and Macedonia, which is the neighboring country, um, a lot of folks just kind of refused to believe it. I, I worked in, in a camp outside of Athens. And so, there was just the rumor mill was buzzing and there were, you know, they're opening it for two hours today and they're opening it for, you know, Sunday because Sunday is a religious holiday in Greece. And it was, it was a lot of rumors. So I think number one, the need was to dispel the rumors um, and, to, and to just spread basic uh, or communicate basic facts to folks. Uh, you know, there, there's, it's, it's natural to sort of resist, I think, this shocking, uh, the shocking change of, 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 of you know, of, of the reality on the ground, you know, that would really impair, you know, husbands reuniting with their wives and, and children with their parents. Um, I think beyond that, there was a big need to meet people's um, sort of basic, basic necessities. Um, we had, uh, you know, the Greek uh, military and the Greek government involved. We had the European asylum system involved, and then there were nonprofits, uh, you know, the typical ones that we can think of, and also UNHCR. But we did see at the very beginning, uh, and I would say even even moving forward into into uh, beyond that, people's basic needs. You know, there there was a lacking there. You know, folks were living in camping tents outside on the street for months. Folks were, you know, didn't have access to, you know, proper bathing facilities for a very long time. You know, I remember one day at the camp, they ran out of water, bottled water, right? And so there was a run for water. Um, and, you know, as tends to happen in these scenarios, you know, factions were created. So at this camp, uh, there were Iraqis, Syrians, and Afghans, and just everyone just sort of and then within Iraqis and Syrians, of course, they have their own uh, breakdowns, but everyone started, you know, falling into line and groups were formed and it just became, it became very ugly. Um, mm -hmm. Thankfully, in that scenario, everything turned out fine, of course, you know, water was eventually, uh, eventually reached people, but, you know, to an already traumatized population, uh, not only from what had happened back home, but also the, the journey, the really horrific journey uh, I can only imagine how triggering an event like that uh, must have been for them. And I imagine this would probably be similar to, this would be a case wherever you would go, I imagine. Like you you were in Greece, you were in Turkey, you know. how? My question is, how different were those experiences, would you say, for yourself and for also the people that you're interacting with? Yeah. So in Turkey, actually, um, you know, so... Turkey and Greece, their neighbors, right? There are a lot of a lot of similarities. But one thing they're not similar in is their government systems. Um, Greece is part of the European Union. You know, it's very easy to to show up to Greece and and volunteer assist in some way. You know, be involved in an organization and um, speak speak freely on what you're seeing, right? Whether that's Facebook or whether that's Twitter, you know, any 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 form of of communication you choose. So Turkey is very different. Turkey has an authoritarian government. Um, even back in 2017, which is when I was there, one had to really watch themselves and what they said. 
um, it's, it's gotten, you know, even more restrictive today. Um, and one couldn't just, you know, there were nonprofit organizations and small cultural organizations that you could be a part of, but you had no access to the formal refugee um, process or population. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, refugees or, or migrants were held in, in camps, and those were closed camps. Um, a lot of them were detained. A lot of they were just sort of there were there were systems that are actually very reminiscent of the American um, the American immigration system, uh, insofar as you know the camps were not accessible, things of that nature. And so it was a different it was a different experience for me altogether. Um, I worked for an organization that uh, worked on appeals for UNHCR refugee status determinations, which is basically like an asylum interview that's held by um, UNHCR. And we're one to successfully pass that um, asylum interview. They would then be placed on the list for potential resettlement to a third country, a refugee receiving country such as the US, Canada, Australia, Sweden. Um, and so we were working with folks that had been denied that first sort of asylum interview. Um, I was working out of an office in Istanbul. I went to work every day like I, like I would go to work, you know, in New York. Um, and I did my work through telephone, you know, with, with, with uh, folks that were all over, all over Turkey. It was a very sterilized experience. Um, not, not better or worse, but really just um, I didn't have the kind of direct access to the population as I did in Greece. And, I, and part of that is, is by design, right? Because in Turkey, when um, this is again, the 2017 system, things have changed quite a bit. But back then, um, when one signs up to, with UNHCR, um, within a few weeks, uh, they, you would be assigned a city and you had to live in that city. Um, and they did that in order to avoid clustering in, in sort of the big metropolitan areas. Um, and so, um, so yeah, our, our clients were all over the country and, and had to stay there. Uh, I think I only met a couple of, a couple of clients in person. Those were uh, those who were uh, assigned to cities that were really close to Istanbul. And throughout all these experiences, you know, was there any story or anecdotes that, you know, stuck out to you the most? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it really, you know, and this kind of connects with the experience you and I shared together. It, it made me really appreciate children in a whole, whole different way. You know, um, our definition of, of, of youth or, or, or childhood in the U.S. is a lot more expansive than it is um, in other parts of the world. But I, I met so many unaccompanied minors in Greece. And, and you, you know, you look at these 15, 14 16 year old boys and you just wonder how it is that they were able to cross so many borders you know be shot at by live ammunition uh, uh, at, at times you know um, work with smugglers you know work around gangs work around I mean just you know you, you can imagine the same the same land routes that are used to traffic humans are the very same ones that are used to traffic other substances so um, just the resiliency of these children really impressed me. And then also how, you know, there's still children at the end of the day. So many of them would tell me I miss my mom. You know, I want my mom's cooking. It was just, it was the, the innocence on the inside combined with sort of the toughness on the outside that always took me by surprise. So, yeah, you said that this ties back to, you know, experience working with my cohort. You said that, you know, the gears were turning 
even as you know you were seeing me every day. And so I hear that, but I want to ask you, when did you know that you know sort of refugee and asylum rights became like your calling? Yeah, I have to say it was the day I came back home to New York and tried to get back into my regular life. And I just thought, you know, none of this matters, right? I, there's something bigger for me out there. And so um, that I, I honored that, you know, uh, and so within two months, I got rid of everything, my car, my, my apartment, everything, you know, and just uh, went up and actually moved to Greece um, where I remained for the next six months. So I would say it was, it was, it was instantaneously. I, I, I could not see myself um, returning to my regular life having seen what I saw and having sort of, um, you know, recognized uh, not, not, not what I could do for them, but really what, what, what they could do for me. So, so that's, that was it, the, the, the beginning of what would be uh, a career that lasts until today. All right. So I'm now we're sort of transitioning for, to like more of the, the, um, the outcomes. Um, I just want to ask you, what do you, what is something that you learned by being on the front lines of a refugee crisis that you could have only learned being involved in like the dirt and the mud and the work of, you know, making sure that these people had good outcomes? Uh, one of the things I learned, uh, you know, this is now again, 2016 Afghanistan, uh, folks were coming, uh, crossing the border from Turkey into Greece, sharing these horrific stories about the Taliban and, and, and ISIS at that time. And over and over again, the way they were treated by the European officials was, um, you know, they were consoling them and saying, I'm really sorry this happened to you, but unfortunately you don't qualify for asylum. And that's because at that time, you know, we still had that narrative under the former president Karzai and under President Obama that things were, things were going well in Afghanistan, right? We had some bumps in the road, but, um, and there are some, you know, sort of dangerous areas, but on the whole, the country works. And so if you're not safe in your, in your neighborhood, in your town, then you can just up and move yourself to a different neighborhood or, or to the capital, right? So unfortunately, history has really showed us how, how um, incorrect and how wrong they were. So I, I just think about so many of those asylum seekers who had made it to Greece and were deterred or convinced to turn back and were repatriated back to Afghanistan because they had been communicated, uh, it had been communicated to them that their claims would not be, would not qualify for asylum. Um, I think that was a real injustice that they did. I think anyone that was paying attention to what was happening in Afghanistan at that moment, you know, afterwards, before anyone who could read the writing on the wall could tell you that things were not going well for that country. And so it would have behooved them to stay where, where they were in Greece, you know, try their hand at the asylum system, work through the legal mechanisms um, of, you know, appeals and, 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 and think about sort of their, their and their families, uh, uh, sort of the best place that, 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 that they would have stayed safe. Um, and so that was really what I learned. I learned that um, sometimes it's the asylum seekers or the, or the refugees that know more about their own countries. I mean, oftentimes that is the case, but really sort of underlining that, um, you know, they, they definitely know more about their countries than the officials do. And, you know, I think, you know, this is not necessarily one of the most preferential ways to um, come full circle, but 
we're a few months, you know, we're half a year removed from August and we're undergoing another important refugee crisis in Afghanistan. And having been on the front lines previously, like what are the mistakes that you hope that we don't make? Or what are things that you think that we could do better this time? You know, with regards to, you know, looking out for the safety and, you know, the positive outcomes of everyone who's looking for a better life. Uh, that's a great question. You know, this, uh, the Afghan uh, refugee crisis is not new. It's, it's it started in 1978, 1979. So we're on decade five. Um, I think, um, you know, for those folks that are now sort of now being exposed to this uh, to this refugee crisis, I would, you know, encourage everybody. I would implore everybody to to to, to do some uh, to do some studying and, and, and go back a little bit and learn a little bit about the history of this country. I think one of the one of the um, areas I could definitely see as an opportunity for, for growth are folks that recognize that Afghans are not like other refugee populations. The unrest did not happen in their countries overnight. Um, it has been five decades of nonstop instability, violence, terrorism, war. It has been the moments of peace that have been the anomaly. And so to the extent that we're looking at Afghans and sort of saying, well, they don't act like you know, this other sort of ideal a refugee population, you know, I would say we really need to uh, to humble ourselves and, and and to consider that, you know, there are very real reasons why that's the case, right? Afghanistan at one point was one of the, the highest mined countries in the world. I think it has one of the lowest rates of literacy in the world. It has one of the lowest rates of development in the world. It has one of the highest rates of infant mortality in the world, one of the highest rates of, uh, of uh, you know, maternal mortality during childbirth in the world. All of these things didn't happen overnight. They weren't caused by the Taliban. Um, and they're not gonna go away if the Taliban were to go away, right? This is, the country never had an opportunity to develop. The country's, you know, uh, everything, think of everything that, that has happened in our lives since 1978, 1979, right? We go back and watch some of our old sitcoms and what life used to be like back then and now, right? So Afghanistan missed all of that, right? They missed all of that. And there were certain bubbles of, of the country, in particular the capital, that did benefit from sort of modern American, you know, Western life and 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 perhaps their life looked you know similar to ours um, in the US, but that was not, that was by far not common. And it was not indicative of sort of where civil society was at, at uh, you know, as a whole. Um, so I would really encourage, I think, more than anything, folks to um, appreciate um, the struggle, not only of this migrant population, but that of their parents and oftentimes that of their grandparents. We've had so many, you know, three to four generations out in Afghanistan that have been incredibly traumatized, incredibly broken by, um, by you know the failure of the state to work for them. So now you've ended up at Human Rights First and you're a managing attorney at Project Afghan Legal Assistance. Are you excited to be working on this, you know, not so near front, not so new frontier of refugee work? Absolutely. So when I came back from my time in Greece and Turkey, uh, my first position as you as you pointed out was with Catholic Charities, this time in New York uh, with the Immigrant Services Department. Uh, I was still able to work on plenty of cases that were very familiar to me. I had a few Afghan cases in my docket and um, asylum seekers. 
quite represented who are from Turkey, um, uh, the Uyghurs in, in China, and other populations who you know I had worked sort of directly with uh, in my time abroad. Um, but it wasn't until what had happened this past summer, the unfortunate events that you know led led me to the path that I've now taken. You know, we were all watching really horrified, you know, horrified the events in August of 2021. I have two to 300 members of my family who are still in Afghanistan. They live in a city in the north called Mazar-Sharif. I am very much uh, closely connected to them, the majority of whom I have never met in person. Um, but we have maintained very close uh, connections over the years. And so when we saw one city fall after the other, it was really panicked like everyone else. I, you know, tried to, uh, you know, redirect that panic into action and, and, and reached out to local, um, local representatives, you know, government representatives, organizations, everyone that I could think of. And we were pushed, encouraged to apply for something called humanitarian parole. Uh, it's a protection um, that has been around for a while, but it was really offered as the, the solution for folks looking to get their family members and loved ones out of Afghanistan. This was pushed even at the highest levels by, um, by Congress. Congress people. And so I filled out uh, a few dozen humanitarian parole applications on behalf of my most vulnerable family members back home um, and sort of just waited like everyone else. Um, and I saw within a short time after that a job posting with Human Rights First for a managing attorney for uh, this project, this pro project Afghan Legal Assistance. And I thought, you know, um, I'm doing this work already, you know. I'm following uh, these issues already. I'm doing the trainings that are being offered. I'm connecting with the folks that I wanted, you know, I, I needed to connect with. And so how great would it be to sort of get paid to do something that I'm so passionate about and that matters so much to me and that, you know, literally keeps me up at night, but in sort of the best ways. Um, and so here we are uh, to give you a, a, you know, update on the humanitarian parole. Uh, you know, that's kind of taken a, a really bad turn where, um, the first few months of adjudication, the U.S. government was denying any of those applications. I haven't received denials on my family members yet, so I'm hoping that that's there's at least a sliver of hope there. Um, but uh, we're that those are still waiting. None of my family has been able to get out. They're still very much um, in the same position that they were at the fall of that country in August. I very much wish the best of luck to your family. Not that I can do much to affect that, but know that I care extremely much about it as well as you do, because you are close to me. Thank you. Um, maybe to inject a little bit of levity as we start to close out, um, there's a running joke on the podcast that everyone is free to plug whatever current work or resources they would like to. So this is your time. Are there any resources that you think is important for our listeners to be aware of? Or do you want to talk about human rights first a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. So Project Afghan Legal Assistance, um, as, I, as I noted earlier, was created in the aftermath of the horrific fall of the Afghan government to the Taliban in August of 2021. We are meant to be a coordinating agency um, where we coordinate the different services that are um, that are being offered to Afghans uh, who are evacuated to this country. So uh, coordinating social services, legal services, with settlement services, um, volunteers, Afghan-American organizations, Muslim-American organizations, really we're a space by which uh, everyone 
has a seat at the table and we encourage all folks to share in their um, in their unique perspectives. You know, this is, you know, to harken back to your point earlier, this is something that we can really do differently this time around, um, not only for the Afghan population, but I would say for all populations, right, is um, because of the sort of social change that we've all as a, as a society have, have, um, have taken, um, you know, we really recognize the need for, uh, for voices from those populations to speak up and not for others uh, to speak on their behalf. So really honored and privileged to be a, a part of uh, a team like Human Rights First who, who really takes that to heart. I've always felt like they've elevated first and foremost Afghan-American voices and even you know Afghan voices to the extent that that's possible. Um, so we really wanna encourage all folks who have uh, a unique perspective to offer to join our um, coalition calls. You can get more information about that by emailing Paula, P-A-L-A, at humanrightsfirst.org. Um, and similarly, I wanna uh, encourage any folks who know of any Afghan evacuees who are in need of legal representation and who are not assigned an attorney through the Refugee Resettlement Agency to email us at the same email address and we get them on a list to hopefully find them an attorney to help them um, navigate the legal immigration process to um, grant them permanent, uh, permanent residency in the U.S. and hopefully an opportunity to bring their, their families over. All right, then. So I think that brings us to the end of this. Uh, thank you, Shala, for your time and expertise. Um, I just wanted to thank you again. You know, such a pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited for what you're doing. And I'm so excited once again to continue to, to continue to talk in the future. I hope this experience was as good for you as it was for me. Thank you, Trishan. It was wonderful. Really appreciate it. All right. So the podcast is coming to a close. There will be a, a recorded version of this podcast on the Immigration Advocates website at immigrationadvocates.org. Access is free for members, and membership is free for nonprofit non staff and pro bono attorneys. If you aren't already a member, we hope that you will join us. Thank you, and have a great day.